Welcome to Word of Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is, it's August 10th, 2022, and I'm ready to begin our worship service. Let's begin with prayer. Thank you, Father, for this time we have this evening. We thank you for life, health, and strength. We thank you for those who have joined, and we pray that as we open your word, that our study will give us the the knowledge and wisdom that will enable us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. 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 All right. All right. So we are um, focused on um, Romans chapter 11, and we're looking at verse 17, although... um, we should be just about finished verse 17. Uh, so in your notes, you have a couple. The first one is continued from 8.3.22. And we're just going to cover that quickly. And then we'll get to write where we are. We only have a few points from point number four to cover. We will take care of that. Uh, so we're in... Uh, in your notes, Romans 8:17, if some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, right? So as we continue to develop analogies, there is something we must keep in mind. You want, hold on. Resuming, so as we continue to develop analogies, there is something we must keep in mind. The analogies are not designed for us to mold into any message what we want to give. Uh, The purpose of analogies and metaphors is to elaborate and make clear what God is already saying to us in the context. I know this seems obvious, but we must take time to review our assumptions to be sure They are contextual and relevant to the message. God is using these analogous examples to reason with us. A point to remember, metaphors and analogies validate the context. The context validates the central principle or truth. So we went and uh, we took a look at this and we got all the way down to point number four where it says, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. So we just got about four or five points to cover. And let's take a look at that. So the first one is, what is the olive tree metaphor? And we went through, actually we covered this. We went to Zechariah 4. We, we read the 1 through 14 where Zechariah pictured Israel as an olive tree, two olive trees standing on either side of a lampstand. And this represented, uh, as I said before, the visible people of God in the world. And that leads us right to point B. The olive tree or trees in our example in Zechariah represent the visible people of God in the world. And that would be Israel. And there wasn't any question about that because there was no church 
to consider in the Old Testament. The lampstand would be Jesus Christ, the Messiah himself, or we could say the root. God always had a witness in the world from believers. So when we say that Jesus Christ is the root, uh, even though we could talk about the establishment of Israel as the root, because that's where Jesus Christ came from. He came from Israel. But really, he's the Messiah. He's the one around. Uh, is the, the fact that Israel was created around the idea of the Messiah. Without the Messiah to Israel, there is no Israel. So if, in my mind, Christ is the root. But officially, we're going to see, officially, God established a means by which he would reach the world through the nation Israel. So I could see where the root could be viewed of the establishment of Israel from which Christ came. Right? So all of this goes back to the original plan of God from eternity past, right? To bring many sons into glory. Israel is a component part of that. So out of Israel came Jesus. Now, I, when you look at Revelation 12, it's a good example of why I'm kind of hesitating to say that exclusively Jesus Christ is the root. Because in Revelation 12, 17, or, or not 12, 17, but Revelation 12, it starts off talking about there was a woman clothed. Let me just read it so we can understand why I'm saying what I'm saying about the root. So Revelation 12 starts off like this. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. So who is this woman? We know it is Israel. And what do you mean she was about to give birth? Right? She was about to you know, give birth to a son. And it goes on and we know who the son is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So it pictures... Jesus coming from Israel. But, you know, as we think about it, there, there is no Israel, there is no gospel that Israel was supposed to take to the world without the Lord Jesus Christ being the central point or focus of Israel. So, when we think about what is the root, right? So you have the olive tree metaphor and then you have the root of the olive tree mentioned. So we, we could look at it in a couple of ways. We could, we could see that the establishment of Israel is the root. We could say that's the root. But ultimately, uh, an Israel without Christ is like a fish that doesn't have any water. Um, it, what good is having an Israel that's supposed to take the gospel to the world that doesn't believe in the gospel, that hasn't believed in the gospel for themselves. So in, in, in one sense, you know, 
why did Israel, why were we're going to rush ahead and say this? Why were branches broken off? They were broken off because of unbelief. Unbelief in what? The law? No. Unbelief in their Messiah. So yeah, when we talk about the root, you could say it is God establishing the nation Israel in the world, the visible people of God in the world. But the root of those people is, is, is Christ. So, so that's what I mean by there's some equivocation on my part by saying it that way. But um, I just want you to understand my thinking process as I look at it look at it from that standpoint so point b the olive tree represents the visible people of god in the world and that is obviously israel the lampstand would be jesus christ in my zechariah analogy well zechariah the messiah himself or the root god always has a witness in this world from believers he always did even if there was no official establishment he worked through families in the world, whether it was Noah or Abraham or Job or whomever. God always had representatives in the world. And, and even if we say he doesn't have any, he does have a representative in the world by way of God the Holy Spirit. He was always going to the hearts of unbelievers, wherever they may have been, uh, in the world, God, God the Holy Spirit has gone to them to witness in their hearts about Christ. So let's keep going. Point C. However, God's official calling was organized under the patriarchs and confirmed by the establishing of the nation Israel. And that's where I'm. That's why his official calling, right? So he organized a nation. God brought forth. The nation Israel. It was his invention, his plan to bring forward a nation that would do his will in the in the world and be his visible people for all other nations to look to for salvation, for understanding who God was through all of the doctrines that we have of soteriology. Uh, the Jews had it all. They had it in their temple services. They had it in their feast days and worship days. Their Sabbaths, plural. All of those things represent uh, what the Messiah would do and did in a visible way to all the nations in the world. So this was God's official calling, right? He called people before. He called Noah. He said, Noah, I want you to build me an ark. And here's... It's going to be 120 years, and then the flood's going to come. So you could say Noah was his person, but no. This is official, where God called a nation. That's when it first happened with Israel. And we, got, we don't have any written scriptures from any of those sources, whether it be Methuselah or believers in that age, Seth, Enoch. Uh, we don't know. What, all we know is what we got from Moses, who was telling us about things that have happened in those prior years. So uh, no official writing of scripture came before Israel, even though there was a lot of history that happened. We got Adam and the woman, the garden, 
all that, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, all that came as a result of the revelation from Israel. These are God's people in the world, organized. And how did he do it? Through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who eventually his name was changed to Israel. Okay, point D. We share in the nourishing sap. So, and now, share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Okay, so, um, what does that mean? It means that, that is, that what is the nourishing sap? That's the gospel, as administered by the spirit of truth. That is, in this age, right? we share in, it, in the nourishing sap. So, if you look at John 16, 8 through 11, you find the Holy Spirit's work in this new age, how uh, he convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, of sin because men do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned, and so forth. This, the Holy Spirit, is taking to the world. This is the role that he is playing to unbelievers. So he does that in John 16, 8 through 11, but then he turns his attention to believers. Jesus says, I have much more to tell you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he also has another ministry, another part of his ministry toward believers. And then he goes and he starts telling them about how he's going to guide them into all truth and how he will not speak on his own. He'll speak only what he hears and he's going to tell us everything about Christ. And, and But Christ tells us in, in, the, in that, he says, but wait a minute, just letting you know, everything that I have came from the Father. So that's, that's the information that the Spirit is going to make known to you. So there's two ministries of the Spirit, one to unbelievers and one to believers. So you have it right there. Um, That is the nourishing sap. So point E, the olive root would be Jesus himself, who is the very uh, center of our message to the world. And that's 2 Corinthians 5, 19. That's clearly, is that God speaking through us, that Christ died for our sins, right? Um, So we talked about the olive root. But the olive root again, also is a reflection on Israel. Why? Because that's where Christ came from. That's, that's, you know, so it's Christ along with the establishment of his visible people in the world. So I did miss a scripture when I talked about the nourishing sap, and that was John 4, 13 and 14. Let's look at that. I think it's certainly worth looking at John 4 so this is what Jesus said to the woman he says you know they had they were at the well Jacob's well Uh, and this is what he said in verse 13 everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So when I hear those words, 
And Jesus mentions this sort of thing. He, t- he says, and, uh, if you, he says, there will never thirst, never hunger, right? These are terms which mean nourishing. So if, what will truly nourish us, it is the very gospel. And the gospel is what flows through. That is the nourishing sap that flows from the root through the branches to the fruit. Right? That nourishing sap. And if we partake of that, we will be satisfied. We will be, we will be nourished. So I think that's what that refers to for those who receive it. Right? We share in the nourishing sap. Now, of course, Israel should have shared in that as well. Because if they don't share in it, how can they preach anything about which they do not know? They cannot share in the nourishing sap like we can. So the olive root itself will be, it will be Jesus because he is the very source of Israel. Uh, but it is also by way of uh, order we could say it is also Israel and the, the patriarchs in Israel as well, the establishment. Okay, so we are moving to our, I don't know if we're going to, what time is it? Uh, we can. We got about 20 minutes. Maybe we can go through it. So if you go to, uh, in your notes, we're looking at verse 18 now. So it continues. Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, Consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. So there's much talk about the root, which is why I wanted to make sure that we don't, you know, go past what is the root. We just need to be sure what it is. So uh, in your notes, so it's done now. God put Israel on pause and is now working through the church which is his right arm in the world. We may not realize how prestigious our role as ambassadors is today, but Israel does. Even though Israel was not fulfilling their role properly, they coveted being in that role. The fact that the eternal God revealed himself to them and through their culture was undeniable. Some believers have have not been able to follow God in his eternal purpose and have not kept pace with God's direction in the church even though quote God testified to it by signs wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will unquote that's Hebrews 2 4 while it is important for Israel to see God's direction It is equally important for former Gentiles to see the new way designed especially for the church. So one, let's look at point number one as we are moving in. Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. It's interesting because now we're going to turn to attitudes. So first... First point, Paul is speaking to the Gentiles directly now because salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. And so we, we already discussed what it means for salvation to come to the Gentiles. In fact, I was going to put that on 
uh, address that as a question, but I hope I don't have to because everybody here knows that salvation coming to the Gentiles does not mean that all the Gentiles are saved. By no means. <laughs> there wouldn't be any need for the visible people of God if everybody saved anyway. So no, that's not what it means. What it means is now the Gentiles and the church, that is, which is primarily Gentile. And there is no nation right, in particular that is God's holy, precious nation in this age. Israel is on pause, as we said earlier. So it means that now the church has taken this role that Israel had, which is to be the visible people of God in the world, the church now has assumed that role. So that's what's important about do not consider yourselves to be superior to the other branches because now you are in the place Israel was. Now, it doesn't mean we're a nation. doesn't mean we're under the Mosaic Law. doesn't mean any of that. It just means for this particular part of Israel's role, which is God wants people, he wants boots on the ground, his people, then Israel was not fulfilling that, and God had to discipline them severely, and he did. So now he has allowed us in the church to assume that role, which is why we always use the verse in uh, 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all men to be saved. So there are two focuses that we have as far as the church is concerned. At least, this is our church, but all churches should have these two focuses in mind. One is that it's the salvation of all mankind, right? So all the, everybody who's lost, it is our objective to preach the gospel to them, to bring people to Christ. Right, that's our objective in the church. Second, and it says it is this is good and pleases God our Savior. Once all men to be saved, we also have adopted that, and to bring everyone to the full knowledge of the truth. And that is the second part of what we are doing here. We're not just uh, an evangelistic uh, effort. This is not just that pursuit. We are focused on from two fronts. One is, yeah, evangelistic in nature. The other one is growing in grace and reaching the fullness of the knowledge that has been given to us in this age. This new information that has not only changed what we think, it essentially changes who we are. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. So we are there. And those two objectives stand out. So again, there we are. We're in Romans 11. And that's what we're, we're talking about. What is our attitude? And what does it mean that salvation has come to the Gentiles? That's what it means. That this now, this ministry is ours. Point B. The Jews, instead of this blessing being a benefit to all nations, it became a source of pride which descended into arrogance. So God did marvelous things through the nation Israel. He um, removed them from Egypt. He extracted them so that uh, 
it was a demonstration of power and the whole world was able to see the signs of wonders, the miracles of how God extracted Israel from Egypt. And Israel saw that and it was miraculous to them and instead of that becoming a source of great pride and, and humility before God, that humility, uh, there wasn't that, no humility. What happens is the, it was pride which de deteriorated into arrogance. And we could say that that was the downfall of the nation. Point C, imagine this. God blessed Joseph with a special revelation, right? Remember, you know the story of Joseph and how his brothers threw him into a pit, they sold him into slavery, uh, and then you know, how all of that developed. So just imagine, God blessed Joseph with this, and that's what happened. He, Joseph had these dreams, and in these dreams, all of his brothers, his older brothers, were bowing down to him. Like he was, and then his father made him this coat with all these different colors and he was parading around in front of the other ones telling them that he had had these visions of how all these things were going to happen and uh, the brothers just saw this as complete arrogance on Joseph's part. Uh, so, um, and Jacob clearly favored Joseph, so, but all of this added to their anger and jealousy. So imagine that if he did not learn the lessons of humility by going to the lowest places in his life, that is, first to Potiphar's house and then to the dungeon, right? right? He stayed in the dungeon for many years. He would not have become the salvation or the deliverance. That's what kind of salvation was uh, Joseph brought of the world. So I want to look at Genesis 45, 3 through 8 for that point. Genesis 45. Let's go there quickly. 3 through 8. So 3. Joseph said, this is the showdown, right? Finally, back and forth. But then verse 3. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. It is my, is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because... They were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, don't be distressed, and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Can you imagine the wisdom Joseph had all of that time to figure out. And for years, he probably didn't know exactly how it would pan out until it happened, until he finally was in the position. Let's keep going. For two years now, there had been a famine in the land. And for the next five years, there was no plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord 
of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. So there you have it. I mean, there's much more you could read about this story. It's a fantastic story about uh, how Joseph was blessed tremendously, but he had some lessons to learn before he was able to be used of God. So, the, you know, when you think about it, with blessing comes great responsibility, and that great responsibility means that you are, uh, you, you are responsible to God. God gives you this position so that you can be a blessing in this world. Uh, obviously, he raised Israel up for a specific purpose. He blessed them. He gave them all the assets needed, and they failed. They were responsible to God. So let's keep going. We're going to get more to that point. So point D, so the Jews considered themselves superior to the Gentiles. That is clear. So when you, when I'm just reversing this, right? So Paul is checking the attitude of the Gentiles. So you don't consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. The other branches are the Jews who are going to be broken off. We're, we're seeing, uh, you know, that's ahead of us. But the other branches are reference to Israel. Right? The, the individual tribes, the branches. So if you consider this, then the point is don't get arrogant like they did. Right. So I'm just giving you the understanding that, yeah, they were arrogant. And it almost goes without saying. I think everybody knows this. But point D is that, yeah, they consider themselves superior. So Ephesians 2, 11 through 13 is the scripture I have just to demonstrate that point. And there's a lot you could. I could take you to the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. But let's look at this one. Two, Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that <coughs> excuse me, you were formerly, formerly you were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcision by those who called themselves the circumcision, which is done by the body in human hands. I'm told, as I read this verse in 11, that this word that was said of them, uncircumcision, was not a favorable word. It is not just the literal. It was a word of derision. It was the Jews uh, mocking the Gentiles. So, uh, this is definitely not a good thing, verse 11. So, this is, Paul is pointing out, this is what, this is how they saw you, right? When they saw you, this is what they said. Remember, verse 12, that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. So Gentiles were the ones needing salvation. Right? They, God didn't you know, bless them and say, I'm going to make you a blessing to all nations. No, they were the ones who needed the gospel. They were lost in the world. And God is saying, yeah, I'm going to send the nation Israel. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And we could keep going on where it talks about destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility and all that. 
and made one new man out of the two. Right? So we could just get to get the point that Israel was hated, uh, um, or sorry, the Gentiles were hated by Israel. There's no doubt about it. But what does the Gentiles do in point E in our notes? Now, Gentiles, that is former. Because once we're in Christ, we're not Gentiles anymore. But those who have the culture of being a Gentile should not allow this blessing that we have. Like it says, now salvation has come to the Gentiles. Shouldn't allow this blessing to descend into arrogance as Israel. So Israel did, and that's how they handled it. They looked down on other nations and thought they were better. In fact, did not even want to consort with Gentiles in any way, shape, or fashion. They uh, excluded themselves from Gentiles when they were supposed to be bringing the gospel of grace. Point F. Blessings here means responsibility. This is if you want to put a star by this point, just put a star because this is an important point. All of them are. But this one in particular, and I'm going to say why. And so blessing here means responsibility, and we are responsible to God. If that's that's how you have to look at it. So I I I wonder how many think it is simply a benefit to their lives and circumstances. So when people get blessed, they are only looking at self. They're only looking, wow, you know, God, you got me that job. I am surely blessed. Oh, God, you, you did this for me. Oh, what a blessing, right? Anything that's good that happens in their lives, it's a blessing. Anything that's bad, whoa, Satan's after me. Oh, the devil is after me. Now, when you look at this, and we, we already looked at the life of Joseph, and how Joseph understood it. Finally, he said, like, I, did, I didn't understand anything that was going on in my life. I didn't fully get it. I was ignorant all those years until I finally got a chance to see why God put me in the position he did. And so, brothers, you didn't send me to Egypt. God did. And God had a, a, a blessing that he gave to Joseph. And what was that? Which was to see these visions, to... You know, he, he interpreted Pharaoh's dream and so forth. He was able to see that. And everybody else couldn't see that. But he was blessed, but blessed for a reason. God didn't just say, well, I'm just going to dole out blessings to randomly. You know, if anybody gets it, well, if some gets on you, so be it. That's not it. Blessing means responsibility. So it's just like some other some of the other words that we think about. When we think of baptism, what do we think of? Identification. When we think of um, forgiveness, when we what do we think of? Reconciliation. There's words that we have coined so that we are, you know, able to describe what are some of these biblical terms what, to help us out with the meaning. And so here, when you think about blessing, think about responsibility. And when I think about this blessing, like when we're called, um, that's a blessing. The fact that God would call us, that we, he would choose us for something. Well, three, there are three callings in history. One is Christ, he was called. Israel was called. And the church is also called. We're elected, we're predestined, we're foreknown. So it is with Christ and so it is with Israel. That's special. 
And that special calling comes with it, responsibility. People would say blessing. Why do I say blessing? Well, in Ephesians uh, 1, 3, it is said just th that way, right? So here, I'm just going to read it. Ephesians 1, 3, where it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here it is. Who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ? He has blessed us. So, But then it goes on and tells us how in verse 4. For he chose us in him for the creation of the world. Be holy and blameless in the sight of and he predestined us for adoption and sonship. Well, there it is. He blessed us, but that blessing comes with responsibility. I wonder how many people see that. I wonder if people see that. That's an important point to note. So the fact that we've been blessed with this, you know, salvation has come to the Gentiles or or we've been chosen for this, right? Then we should be able to understand that that blessing is responsibility. Just like Joseph. He was blessed, and God was holding him responsible. And look at the, the gravity of the situation. The, the whole then-known world was delivered through th this, uh, this one person's foresight vision that God had given him. So how important was that? I mean, you could, you could look at that as a metaphor for what God had done with the nation of Israel. God said, I'm going to bring forward this nation, and then through this nation, the Messiah is going to come. Through this nation, I'm going to show the world who I am. What a responsibility Israel had before God. He gave him his laws, and he told them how to walk, and he told them he gave him his salvation. All of that. So it means responsibility. That's clear, hopefully. Let's keep going in our notes. Point G. How do we see Israel? Right? So because that's what, what this is really saying. right? Don't consider yourselves superior to the other branches. How do we see Israel? Point G. Uh... Do we see ourselves as superior to them? Or do we see them as a mission field? How do we view them? Right. So in Romans 10.1, Paul sees them as people who are, he says, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. So, right, so Paul understood them as a mission field. Even in our context, he says, I'm doing this, hopefully, even with making this thing larger than it is, magnifying your calling would help, hopefully, to show, uh, make Israel envious, and some of them might get saved in the process. Or there's John chapter 4 again, 34 to 42. Let's look at that one. John 4. So here it is, 34. I, I'm not going to re review the whole story. Um, 34, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. He knew he had a responsibility over his life. Verse 35, Don't, don't you have a saying? It is still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. 
Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one who sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. But many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. That was her testimony. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. We now have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. What a testimony. This is, this is exactly the work, right? This is what Israel should have been doing. Jesus demonstrates the whole thing right there to the, to the hated Samaritans. They weren't the enemy. The Jews thought they were. But the Samaritans were not the enemy of God, of people. Right? Let's separate from them. Why are you talking to that woman? No, that wasn't. Jesus demonstrates how it should have worked. Even the Samaritan woman herself said, You are talking to me? Why are you talking to me? Don't you know who I am? And don't you know who you are? But that's not the way it should be. And Jesus was demonstrating that. There you have an illustration. The disciples were bewildered, I would imagine. But the, I hope they caught the message there of what Israel should have been. That was point G. So, uh, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. Um, and then, what? just a couple points on that phrase. Church, suppose you have the wrong attitude about this calling. You have been given, right? Suppose, just imagine. Wouldn't that be very similar to what's going on with Israel? Israel got the wrong attitude. I'm saying, church, we ought to make sure we check ourselves. Make sure that we don't have some attitude of separatism, exclusiveness, uh, you know, following some rules and commandments and making people jump through hoops when it should be grace. Church, check yourself. Point B, suppose you are ignorant of your calling and are actively resisting the spirit of truth. Imagine, right? That would be very similar to what happened to Israel. Israel was resisting the spirit, right? That They were always resisting the Holy Spirit. That was where they got into trouble. They were not listening to God. So point C, stop and be sure you have the proper attitude as you minister for God in this world. Quote, therefore, be as shrewd as snakes, but innocent as doves. Uh, so it's, it is important for us to have the proper attitude when we're out there. We need to stop. It says, if you consider this, right? I'm saying we ought to consider that we don't have the same attitude that Israel has, that we step away, that we recognize their failures and we see them for what they did and we don't repeat their errors in uh, judgment. So it's important as we think about it. Um, I see our time. I'm going to pause. We'll save some of this for next week. 
uh, well, this next phrase, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. We'll get some of this next week, but we're going to pause for a minute to see. Actually, we were going to go over some of the questions uh, that we had for homework. Uh, I say homework, but these are questions to help us think about our not only who we are, in Christ, but I think most of these questions come from what we have been talking about on Sunday. So first, I'm going to lay it out there to see if there are questions about any of the questions. If someone's unclear, if not, we'll just quickly go over what the questions were and what the answers are. I'll pause. All right. I guess there are no questions, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to go to the questions, see if we can't answer a few. I think the answers, uh, let's get to it. All right, so, first question, rejecting the spirit of truth can be done uh, in two clear ways in John 16. What are those two clear ways? Now, you can grade yourself. Uh, you can't grade yourself if you didn't do the homework. But if you did the homework, then you can grade yourself and see how you answered these questions. So the first question I answered this evening, there are two clear ways that the Holy Spirit came and presents his ministry. One is in John 16, 8 through 11. Uh, where he says when he when the spirit comes he's this is what he's going to do he will convict the world of sin that's to unbelievers as we already kind of went over that question and then to believers where he he deals with the spirit of truth and how uh, he will guide us into all truth he will not speak on his own we, we covered that that's the two clear so if you reject the spirit two clear ways you can reject him one you can refuse to believe in Christ where he is urging you to. You are, that is rejecting the Spirit. Two, you could refuse the New Age information. That is the mystery, you know, all of the uniqueness of if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. You could refuse to understand dispensations, how this is a hidden dispensation. It's, it was hidden in God. No, it wasn't given to Israel. It wasn't given to Gentiles. Right? So you can resist all that, and then that is, those are two clear ways you are rejecting the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Truth. Point number two. Point number two. Oh, question number two. Oh, okay, go ahead. Yeah, I hear you. I was going to say, before you go to point number two, what you just went over just brings up something to mind. This is about when... Um, they said Jesus cast out demons with the Elzebub. Yes. Mm -hmm. That would be an illustration of what you're speaking of. Um, in some ways, um, it was them rejecting the Spirit because remember, Jesus said, "If you uh, you can talk about me all you want, but if you reject, if you blaspheme the Spirit, then." There is no forgiveness, not in this age nor in the one to come. 
So, but what is rejecting the spirit or blaspheming spirit tantamount to saying that Jesus is not the Christ, the son of the living God. And here Jesus was doing the miracles that demonstrated that he was the Christ. So, so the thought is, is rejecting salvation is number one way of resisting the spirit. And obviously rejecting the church age would be the second. So certainly, um, the unpardonable sin is in number one, the first thought. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Two. According to John 17, 22, Jesus prays, this is what he prays, I have given them the glory you gave me. What glory is this? And why is he giving it to us? <laughs> so this is kind of one of those plays. I used to say these things, these little quips to you guys all the time. 17, well, why, why, so the first one is, um, uh, what glory is this? It's the glory from verse five in context. And now father glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So the fact that he's given us this glory is the same glory that he had from verse five, where he's asking the father to give it to him. Now he's giving it to us. And then why? Why is he giving us this glory, which is found right there in verse 22? I have given them the glory you gave me. Why? You could ask that they may be one as we are one. So I know we could come up with other reasons, but I just wanted you to look at the context and to see that Hina is because of so that, right? It means in order that, right? So I've given them the glory you gave me in order that they may be one as we are one. So that glory is a part of who we are as those who are in Christ. Those who, uh, that was the goal of the father from eternity past to bring many sons into glory. So point, this is question number three. Moving on. If salvation is by grace, a free gift, then why are so many believers today seeing salvation as the work of a lifetime? Be specific. Why? It's because uh, today people don't have the understanding of the Christian way of life or the church age, right? The only thing they see is salvation. To them, salvation is all there is. If I could just make it in, if I could only be in that number, I want to do all my best just to get to heaven, right? Well, all that's by grace. The moment you believe in Christ, you have it. There is nothing you can earn. You can't, uh, you can't improve salvation by how you behave after salvation. It, whether you grow up and reach maturity and the fullness and stature of Christ or none of that affects your salvation. It's the same. The moment you believe in Christ... You cannot improve on it. God has done all the work necessary for salvation. But then, after you're saved, God has a way of life for you as a believer. In this age, it is not governed by the Mosaic Law. It is governed by what we call the mystery doctrine, meaning that which was hidden, but now God is revealing. He's telling us all about who he is and what the Father is doing, his eternal purpose. All of this where he says we are to keep our eyes 
on heavenly themes and not on things on the earth. Why, so why do so many believers get caught up here? Because they don't see past salvation. Their vision is limited. All they can see is salvation, so every scripture they have to figure out has to do something with salvation in their minds. Question number four. For Romans, uh, from Romans 8.29, is there a difference between foreknowledge and omniscience? If not, why not? If, if you answer no, so if you say there's no difference between the two, why not? And if so, what is the difference? If you say yes, there is a difference, you've got to say what it is, hopefully. So what's the difference between foreknowledge and omniscience? Well, there is a difference. They're not the same word. They're not used interchangeably. Foreknowledge has to do with God specifically seeing that certain individuals would be in his plan. He saw them from eternity past, before, the, before creation. His foreknowledge may come from his omniscience, but it is a specific part of his omniscience that he only sees those who have a particular role in his plan. So if we are for, said to be foreknown, that means God has a specific role. He knows everybody from his omniscience, every person that would ever be born, God has to give him life in this world. So omniscience knows all there is to know about every single person. He knows the very hairs on our head. Right? He knows all the detail down to the cellular level. And yet, it doesn't have to do with foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is specific for those who are in his plan. So that is, um, if so, what is the difference? We already said what the difference was. It's specifically those who are in the plan of God. Right? Israel is said to be foreknown. The church is said to be, what do you mean? He chose us in him before the creation of the world. Before he chose us, he foreknew us. Before he predestined us, he foreknew us. He picked us out. He said, yep, that's the one I want right there. And then he went through the process of calling them, electing them, and then predestining them and all of the things that are adoption, adopting them. So anyway, that's number four. I just needed you to know that distinction. Five, when Jesus tells us we are not of this world, in John 17. Why does he say this? Answer, he says this because he chose us out of the world. You get that from John 15 toward the end. Right? He, he, he literally says, well, if the world hates you, don't keep in mind it hated me first. You're not of the world. Why? Because I have chosen you out of the world. That goes along with what we saw, foreknowledge and predestination and election, right? adoption. He chose us out. We're not in the world because uh, we're not of the world because he has chosen us out of the world. We are in the world for sure. So that is what I'm looking for in point num question number five. True, false, question number six. Since tithing was before the Mosaic law and we are not under the law, it is okay for us to adopt in our church. Right, so true or false. Answer to that is false. And why is that false? It's because people have tried to point out that tithing was before the law. Some people, that is. 
even though they may quote Malachi and say, well, you have robbed me and all that, right? <laughs> it's confusing. But even there are some people who think, oh, well, because um, Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek or Jacob gave a tithe, but it, it wasn't the same thing as what people are saying today. And uh, it's a stretch to say that that somehow is some precedent for the church now to be tithing. That's wrong. Second um, thought is uh, that we, the, the mystery age, which was hidden, our lives are hidden from Israel or from Gentiles. Not just, oh, Israel didn't know anything about the way of life that God has for us. Neither do Gentiles. So whether it's before the law, whether it's after the law, it has no relevance. What Our way of life was hid in God. Nobody knew about who we are and what our modus operandi is. So that is not any, there is no precedent in the Old Testament for how we function, other than we have uh, documentation in the New Testament to tell us how we should be giving. Okay, so, and that is certainly sufficient. Okay, so that would, um, oh, point number seven is the last question. True, false. Once a person is saved by grace, they will automatically do the works God desires of them. And that is false. Because we have, first of all, we have examples of people who are saved by grace and are disciplined by God so that they would not be condemned with the world. And some of their discipline was even death. So it wasn't like they had a chance to come back and repent and say, okay, God, I'm sorry, let me get back on the right track. No, God took them out. He took them out. And they were believers. So if you go to 1 Corinthians 11, you know, verse around verse 33, it literally says that. For this cause, some are weak and some are sick and a number have fallen asleep. So, so yeah, that is false assumptions that some Christians have made to say that uh, if you're a believer, then you will do works. That is not the case. Works are only for those who learn how to grow in grace. Who, before you can do any works, you've got to know what God requires of you. You've got to understand the times in which you live. If you're a Christian and you say, okay, I'm going to get busy working on the Mosaic Law, then that is not what God requires of you. And God doesn't look at that and say, oh, it's okay, go ahead and do whatever you want. No, he's, he has specific work for us to do. So we just want to make sure you understand that there is no magic bullet here. Right? Once you're saved, you have eternal life, no doubt about that. But for, for you to grow up, then you have to be transformed uh, by the renewing of your mind. So you can understand what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will that says that's where it says it in Romans chapter 12 so we're gonna have to quit I know our time is over but I wanted to make sure we did cover this um, those were the initial questions the next set of questions we had we will cover those uh, we did send some more questions out prior to to this I believe and we're gonna cover those questions on our next um, yeah, here it is. We sent some out. Uh, since my sins are propitiated, I will more certainly be saved. We're going to cover those next week. So if you haven't done the homework for the first set of questions, then we'll 
give the answers for them on Sunday. So let's bow our heads as we close. Thank you, Father, for your grace. And before we even talk about anything, we want to just say thank you, Father, for not only your sovereign grace, which chose us in him before the creation of the world, but also the salvation, which is by grace that we all share on this call. We are saved, not of ourselves, gift of God, not of our works, not even by works done in righteousness. So we thank you for so great salvation, which is by grace and orchestrated and executed by you and the Lord Jesus Christ, Father. Thank you so much. We pray that you will bring us again next week as we continue to focus our attention on these things. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.